Well, I just want to say good morning to you all. Uh, Good morning to those who are watching online. I get on and pop on Facebook every week and see your comments and your greetings and just want to make sure you know that um, we are so glad you're with us. Um, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning where we will find ourselves at the end of the chapter, verse 10 through 18. You know, there's times in life where you get to look at something from a different angle, maybe a closer look, and you realize something wasn't quite what you thought it was. Sometimes something that you thought was really great and beautiful isn't quite as great or beautiful as you first thought. My mind goes to, you know, you go to theme parks sometimes like Silverwood or Disneyland, and you see all these really cool buildings that, you know, maybe have pillars and, and cool decorations going on. And then you take a closer look and you realize, oh, this is just an ordinary building with a facade on it. It's not as cool as I thought it was. Um, not as great of architecture as I thought it was. This is just fake. Um, so there's times like that in life. On the other hand, there are times in life where you take a closer look and you realize something's far greater, far more beautiful than you first thought. My mind goes to my first trip to Indonesia, and I was on the island of Sulawesi, a very remote part of Indonesia. Um, Absolutely a beautiful place. Uh, Paint the picture in your minds, tropical blue waters, uh, majestic terrain with mountains, palm trees, green, uh, beautiful, colorful, tropical flowers, uh, uh, varieties that you've never seen here in the stores. And, and they had sun, too. That was really cool. Um, really great to have sun. And if you'd asked me, you know, could this be any better, I would have said, no, this is, this is about as beautiful as I could think a place could be. And then my friend took me one day. We crossed the street, went onto the beach, and took me into the water and gave me some snorkeling gear. And I went under the water. And what looked like beautiful tropical water on closer inspection was totally different. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to snorkel before, but this being a remote place, untouched by tourism, largely untouched by a lot of things, was a world of vibrant beauty and life and and color, uh, colors I've never seen together, colors with such vibrancy that uh, I I look up Google images to try to find an example. It's like nothing compares. And here this this island that I thought, you can't make this any better. A new perspective, a new view, a new angle. It's like, wow, this is better than I thought it could be. Well, I want this image in your head today as we come to Hebrews chapter 2. You see on your study sheet there, under today's text, after emphasizing Jesus' greatness and deity in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews now takes a detailed look at Jesus' humanity. And I want us to see this in doing so, in taking this new view, a different look, the writer does not diminish Jesus' greatness one bit. Rather, we gain another view of Jesus' unmatched supremacy. My hope today is, if so far, and I hope this was true of you, if you have walked away from our sermons in Hebrews and saying, wow, Jesus is amazing, my hope today is that you walk away saying, wow, he's even better than I thought. Because we're going to take another, another view of him. I'd like to pray, and then we will we'll jump in and, and look at our passage. But let's pray and ask God for his help today, shall we? God, it is so good to be here this morning. So good to worship you. So good to gather and, and lift our voices. And, 
And to remember, God, that you, you, you are God. You alone are God. There is no one like you. There is no one deserving of worship and praise like you are. So it is right for us to gather today and to worship you and to lift up your name and to, to magnify you, Lord. And yet, at the same time, as we think of your greatness... God, you are not some distant, far-off God who has nothing to do with us. You are a God who draws near, who desires relationship. And in such, God, you gave us your word to reveal yourself to us, to reveal truth about yourself so that we might know you better. And God, that's our desire today as we open up Hebrews once again to, to know you better, to understand our Savior Jesus better, to get a better view, a bigger picture God, certainly we often hold false beliefs about who you are. This morning, God, I just ask that you would cause us to see areas where maybe we hold wrong beliefs, areas we need correction, and God, cause us to have right belief. God, we can't do this by ourselves. We need your spirit working in us. So as I speak, as we look at the text, God, help us to to see things Help it to move beyond just head knowledge and help it to translate into our hearts and extend to our hands and our feet so that we might live our lives differently in light of who you are. So God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Wonderful. Well, you now have, I trust, Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18 in front of you. All right, let's go ahead and look at our text today and... We'll jump in. So start in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, they, why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. And there is our text today. What I want to do, I, I, don't want to, I don't plan on working through this in a linear fashion. What I want to do is take several different looks at how Jesus is revealed in this passage today. And the very first one is Jesus the human. Uh, look at verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. And those things the writer is talking about is flesh and blood, our humanity. Because we're human, Jesus became human. Verse 17 likewise says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. 
And you'll, you'll notice at the end of verse 18 as well, it talks about temptation. Uh, it talks about suffering. And one of the things that I want us to see so clearly today, that in the incarnation, Jesus became truly human. He was not pretending. I'll give you several verses here that talk about the Son, the second person of the triune God took on human flesh, and he experienced the fullness of humanity. This can be hard to wrap our, our heads around. I mean, there's mystery here. How can, how can the divine take on human nature, and what does that look like? And one of the things we need to understand about it is to hold on to that mystery and realize that he truly was human. Jesus, in his flesh, knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be lonely. He knew what it was like to be sad. He, he knew what it was like to be sick. He knew what it was like to be tempted. As a child, he had to learn. As a man, he, he sought the will of the Father. As the cross drew near, he experienced anxiety. And when he was nailed to the cross, he truly felt rejection. And he literally died. He was truly human. We need to understand that. Now, now why did Jesus become human? The writer of Hebrews points out that Jesus' humanity was necessary for the atoning work he came to do. Now, historically, the church has rightly rejected heresies such as docetism and Apollinarianism and and any other kind of heresy that minimizes Jesus' humanity. Oftentimes, in trying to figure out this mystery, we end up falling on one side or the other into wrong belief. And through the history of the church, there have risen some wrong beliefs about Jesus' humanity. Docetism was the belief that Jesus simply appeared to be human, grew out of this idea that the, the physical reality was corrupt and bad, and so uh, the divine would never take on physical form. So well, Jesus wasn't really human. He just kind of appeared to be human. You're a fan of Star Trek. You might get in your head this picture of the hologram man walking around uh, pretending to be flesh and blood. On the other hand, Apollinarianism was a wrong belief that taught that, yes, there was a human body, but it, it wasn't really God. It just God kind of took over the human body and controlled it, kind of like a puppet. And these beliefs have been rightly rejected in years. What's wrong? What's the problem with minimizing Jesus' humanity? And does it matter? Well, yes, it does. The author of Hebrews seems to think it matters. And and here's the reason why it matters. When you think about sin, how how did sin come to be? Well, it came through a representative of our entire race. Through Adam, the curse of sin has been inherited among the whole human race. I'm born with a, a sinful nature, and it results in death. And moreover, because of sinful nature, I continue to sin. Uh, It's an important distinction to make that you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You've been born under this curse. There's this idea that there's this representative, that that this, this one person who represented an entire human race, and the entire human race has become guilty and under debt to sin. Oftentimes when theologians talk about this concept, they use the term federal headship. That is to say that Adam was our representative, and, and his sin got credited to all of us. 
Now, how does a, a kind and a loving God deal with this? Because God is also just and holy. And to overlook it and just say, oh, it doesn't matter, I forgive you, would violate God's justice. Well, in the Old Testament, God set up a system for a representative to, to represent people. It was the high priest. And the high priest would make atonement. Of course, the high priest being also a fallen human, couldn't really atone for people's sins. And, and the sacrifice he made, the shedding of blood of an animal, couldn't forgive sins. It just was a system to cover over things, pointing to the cross to eventual forgiveness. But it is always a way for a just and a holy God and a kind and a loving God to relate to people. But ultimately, a true payment would be needed, a true representative. Uh, we had to have a human representative, and that's what Jesus did. He came and took on human flesh. He, he, he became human so that he could become the representative that we need, so that he could offer the, the payment that we can't pay. Now, sometimes when thinking about federal headship, things like that, people say, that doesn't seem fair. I don't like that. It's not fair that one person could doom the entire race. Well, I want you to think of the converse of that, the other side of that. This concept of federal headship allows one person to redeem the entire human race. If you want to say, this is not fair that one person can represent me, God might say, okay, I agree, you pay the penalty. But he doesn't. Isn't it good that we have a representative that can pay the price that we never could? I don't want you to miss that. And this is what the Bible talks about. I give you two verses, Romans 5.17 and 1 Corinthians 15.21, that, that, that deal with this concept of our two representatives. Adam is the one who represented us and put us under a curse, and Jesus the one who represented us and freed us from the curse. Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin doomed us. Jesus' work freed us. 1 Corinthians 15.21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So I think that is a wonderful thing. So Jesus came. He took on humanity so he could properly be our representative. So he could properly be the true high priest who could offer the true sacrifice that wouldn't just cover over sin, but ultimately pay for sin. Now, one thing I want to cover here before we move on is I think it's very important that as we think about Jesus' humanity to remember that he remained fully divine. Taking on human nature did not mean that he lost his divine nature. Now, sometimes this is expressed. People will say, no, it's not right to say Jesus was 50% God, 50% man. A more theologically correct statement would be he was 100% God, 100% man. But I think it's important to understand this. And, and as we do so, then we have to think about what is the writer of Hebrews meaning that Jesus was perfected and that he was tempted. In verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
So in what sense was Jesus made perfect? After all, if he's God, is he not already perfect? And the answer would be yes, he's already perfect. But we tend to think of perfect in terms of being without fault or without blemish. When the Bible uses the word perfect, oftentimes it carries more the idea of completeness or fulfillment. To be made perfect is to be completed or fulfilled. And in Jesus' suffering, his death on the cross, he completed his task as the Savior of humankind. That's how Jesus was perfected through suffering. What was his task? Well, it was to live a truly human life, to endure every temptation that we might have, yet without failure, without sin, And then in doing so, to be able to die in our place, to be the sacrifice that fully pays the debt owed to God. So even though Jesus was perfect in his divine nature, his task as Savior was not completed until that moment he crossed the finish line of death. See, up to that point, he faced temptation, and and he, he had to cross that line to where he reached that point where every temptation had been faced, perfectly without sin. Now, we might also then look at this idea of being tempted and say, well, Jesus could be tempted. Does that mean he could have failed? Could Jesus have sinned? And my answer there is no. I want to use an illustration to kind of help us see what is going on there with with the temptation. I once heard an illustration. I, I really like it. There's a small town in Texas next to a river, and it's the kind of river that during the summer completely dries up, not a speck of water in the river. But during the rainy season, uh, there'd be a lot of water in this river. I mean, this thing would just be oftentimes flooding. And during one particular flood, this old railroad bridge, wooden railroad bridge, was washed away. So a railroad company came along, and they promptly replaced it with a brand new steel railroad bridge. And after they were done doing it, the railroad company brought two train engines, parked both of them on the bridge at the same time, and sounded both their whistles. Well, a small town nearby, the people had never heard two whistles blowing before, so they thought, what's going on? They all came out to the bridge, the river, and saw these two train engines parked on there. And one of the townsfolk said, what are you doing to the conductor? The conductor says, well, we're testing the bridge. So a man from the town asked, well, do you think it will fall down? And then conductor with a smirk said, of course it won't fall down. He said, we put these two engines here to prove it won't fall down. You see, as Jesus faced temptation, it wasn't that he could have sinned. It was to prove that he was who he said he was. See, if he had sinned, it wouldn't have proved that God could sin. It simply would have proved that he was not God in the flesh. But in facing temptation and living the perfect life, he proved exactly who he claimed to be. And I want us to see this, that as we look at the humanity of Jesus, the author of Hebrews is once again lifting up the greatness of Jesus. After all, what man could face temptation and walk away unscathed? Never a wrong thought in your mind. Never a slip up. And beyond that, to realize that it wasn't just that Jesus never did anything wrong. He always did exactly what he was supposed to do. You see, sin isn't just the bad things we do. Sin is the the good things we fail to do. And the Bible says we are to love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole spirit, and, and all our strength. And Jesus did this. He's like no other. So, So he was truly unique and unparalleled. 
So I want us to see this, what Jesus accomplished with his humanity. Look at verse 10 once more. I want us to look at a particular word here. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I want you to look at that word founder there. I want to draw your attention to that. The Greek word here is archegon. I don't often talk about Greek words, but this one is an interesting one. It gets translated a lot of different ways. Of course, the ESV that I'm reading from today um, translates this as founder. Uh, Some Bibles translate this as pioneer or author or trailblazer or guide. Several commentators pointed out that perhaps a better way to translate this word, and perhaps more the sense that the author is trying to convey here, is the idea of a champion or a hero. Jesus is the champion of our salvation. In Greek mythology, when speaking of somebody like Hercules, a hero, this exact same word is used of him. It's kind of like saying Jesus is our our Superman. He's the hero we need to save the day because we're stuck. We, We have no hope without him. And he comes. He's the champion of our salvation So besides Jesus as human, I want us to see Jesus as our champion, our hero. Jesus' humanity does not diminish his greatness. Rather, it allows him to become the hero who can save us. He stands alone as champion. I want us to see his uniqueness here as champion, that no one else could have done this. Him alone. This is lifting up the greatness of Jesus. But I want us to see that this came at a cost. You see, Jesus' death was not a symbolic act. It wasn't done as like an example. The death of Jesus was the actual means for accomplishing our salvation. Uh, In in this passage, the word propitiation is used. And propitiation is a very important word. It's the process of of satisfying a debt, for paying a debt and and setting a record clear. But it's not just a kind of a one-way thing. Uh, where the debt's paid, there, there's a two-way element of it that relationship is restored. And what Jesus did on the cross, he took all the shame and the guilt that's caused by sin, all of our shame and guilt got placed on his shoulders, and he got credited with that. He paid the price. But the really cool thing about the gospel is, is, is that all the righteousness that Jesus earned, his righteous standing, then gets credited to us. So we don't just walk away as people who are forgiven. We walk away as people who are now seen as righteous and, and restored in relationship to God. But this whole process of propitiation is costly. It required him to take on our sin and the burden of that. As I thought about this, one of my favorite passages of the Bible came to mind. The prodigal son this parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. I imagine most of us here are familiar with it. As you recall, the younger son takes his father's wealth, his inheritance, his portion of the inheritance. He goes away and he, he basically spends all the money and comes back begging to just be a servant. Lost his status, lost his place in the family. Burns all his bridges. And as you recall, this story is a beautiful picture of the gospel as the father comes and embraces him and puts the family ring on his finger. He puts the family robe on him. He kills the calf. He, he's not just forgiving him. He's restoring his honor as a son. But you'll recall in this story that there's another son as well. 
There's the younger brother. There's the older brother. The older brother didn't go away and waste the wealth. He stayed at home, did his work. And you know, if you recall, he wasn't too happy about his younger brother being home. It's actually quite a tragic thing. Even at one point, as the father's celebrating, the older son refuses to come into the party. Dad has to go out and beg him, please come in. Not only is he unhappy, but he won't even acknowledge his brother. He doesn't say, my brother. He says, this son of yours. You know, one thing that was pointed out to me one time by Tim Keller, and it's always stuck with me, is if you think about it, the younger brother had taken his full inheritance. Everything that was left, everything the father owned, was actually the older brother's property. So to restore and redeem the younger brother came at a cost to the older brother. The ring that was placed on his finger would have been the older brother's. The robe put on his shoulders would have been the older brother's. The cow that was slaughtered would have been the older brother's. And, and I just want you to see the costliness of this. Now, a good older brother would have gladly agreed to put his robe on his younger brother. He would have gladly agreed to put a ring on him. He would have gladly agreed to see the fattened calf killed and prepared for dinner. He would have been glad to take on the cost to see his younger brother brought home. What a shame that the young man in the story doesn't have a good older brother. Not only was he mad that his brother was getting his stuff, he wouldn't even acknowledge him as a brother. This son of yours. Redeeming the younger brother came at a cost. Likewise, redeeming us came at a great cost. But unlike in the story of the prodigal son, in Jesus we have a good older brother. In the words of Tim Keller, Jesus on the cross was stripped naked so we could receive the robe of righteousness. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought into God's family by grace. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty. And so this brings us to our final look at Jesus here. Jesus, our brother. And I want us to see here this morning that Jesus is the good older brother that we need. See, the salvation that Jesus offered doesn't merely remove a debt. As a good brother, Jesus brings us into God's family and gives us great honor. He acknowledges us. Look at verse 11. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The writer of Hebrews is uh, quoting from the Old Testament here. First, he goes to Psalm 22, verse 22, uh, to look at this first line of, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah chapter 8 is the, the passage that speaks of Jesus being a, a, a stone that will be a stumbling block to people. And in both these passages, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's showing us that the Messiah that was foretold, the Messiah that was prophesied about, 
would earn a salvation, would earn a victory, but it wouldn't be his alone. It would be a victory that he was going to share with his brothers to reign with him. To fulfill the promises of God's intention for humans that we talked about last week with Psalm 8. Uh, there's incredible implications of honor and glory here. That, that as Jesus offers us salvation, again, it's not just saying, yeah, your sins are forgiven. You still have this identity as a sinner. No, it's a new identity. It's, it's an identity of status and of glory and of honor. And you will reign with me someday. You see, the gospel doesn't just remove the guilt of sin, it removes the shame of sin. And I want us to think about the implications of Jesus calling us brothers. I have there on your study sheet, the imagery of brotherhood with Jesus speaks powerfully about intimacy of relationship, shared experience, loyalty. And this is true whether you are female or male. I want to read from one commentator who puts it succinctly and and helpfully kind of looking at some of these uh, symbols that are used in Scripture, when it talks about us being sons or brothers, what's intended by them. He says, when in 2, 10 through 18, the author speaks of us as sons or brothers, he has specific reasons for doing so. The concept of sonship flows from the author's treatment of Jesus as the son and closely relates to the idea of inheritance in the ancient world. This relationship involves honor, unique position, and responsibility, as well as subordination. Sons in the ancient world held a position of honor and responsibility not held by daughters in the ancient world. The author of Hebrews uses sons to refer to all the people of God, male and female, as God's honored children and receptors of his inheritance. So when a female Christian reads that Jesus brings many sons to glory, she should interpret the statement as meaning, Jesus brings me to glory as an honored child for whom there awaits an inheritance. He goes on to talk about brotherhood. He says, in ancient culture, the image of brotherhood spoke of the intimacy of relationship, shared experience, loyalty. Thus, the image communicates a close association, such as in a fraternal relationship, Hebrews 2.12 does not mean Jesus only proclaims God's name to males, but as the parallel in the next line suggests, he announces God's name to all those in the congregation, that is, the people of God with whom he enjoys an intimate relationship. You see, in this idea of you being called brothers by Jesus, I want us to see here Jesus' posture towards you and God's posture towards you. You see, even though God tells us he's a loving father, and even though Jesus tells us he's a good older brother, we so often fall into this very pagan way of thinking of God as this this mean and angry deity up there that we have to appease. Kind of this guy who's just waiting for us to fail and ready to kind of smack us as soon as we, we mess up. And we fall into this line of thinking so easily. I mean, how often do we have something happen to us like we get a flat tire and the first thought is, oh man, I forgot to do my devotions today. God got me for that. Is that the posture of God towards you? Or on the converse, we might read our Bible and rather than reading it for the relationship that God offers, we we treat it as like a checklist. I checked that off so now my day will go better because I did what God needed to be appeased. And you see, that's a very pagan way of approaching God. I want us to so see the posture of God towards us 
His desire, Jesus' desire is that one day, he's sanctifying us so that one day we will reign and rule with him in places of honor and glory. This is not someone just waiting for you to mess up. This is someone who is an advocate and an ally and a friend, a good older brother. I want to turn to two things today, responding to God's word. I want us just to see two major things. Today's text lifts up the supremacy of Jesus as the one who secures our hope and glory. And I want you to think, how does this affect you in your daily life? Are you looking to inferior things for your hope and glory? You know, I, I, I think we so desperately need this. I desperately need this because this is another area we so quickly uh, chase after false things. We, we turn away from our true source of hope and glory and we turn to hollow, empty, temporary things for meaning, for identity, for purpose, for glory. We seek honor and meaning from associations with groups. If this organization honors me, if this organization gives me an award or, or a rank, then I'm really something. I'm, I'm special now. I'm important. We seek honor and meaning from the accumulation of possessions. If my house looks like this, if I have this car, if I have these things, then I'm really something. I'm, I'm on the, the top edge of society. I'm important. We seek honor and meaning from relationships. If this person loves me, uh, if I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse who, who looks like this or does this, or then I'm really something. And you know what? All those things will not last. They're temporary things. They will fail you. They might provide temporary feelings of importance or honor, but they will eventually fail you. Every possession you have collected, let me tell you this, very few of them will end up in a yard sale someday. Most of your prized possessions, your kids are going to throw in the garbage can as soon as you are gone. Sorry to tell you that, but it's true. And along with them, all your awards and certificates are going to go in the garbage. And, and the people we put our hope in, and, and even in ourselves, our bodies are going to fail us, and, and death is going to come after us. They're temporary things. And I'm not saying that to be harsh or mean, but I want you to see that Jesus alone is the supreme source of honor and glory and identity in your life. Don't hold on to anything else. Hold on to Jesus, because death is going to ruin everything else, but not Jesus. That brings me to my final point. As our representative, Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy, and that's death. We've been freed from that thing that enslaves the human race. Look at verse 14 with me. I just want you to see this one more time, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Can I tell you this? In this world, people are enslaved to the fear of death. And if you're finding all your purpose and value in temporary things, death is the most frightening thing in the world. 
If you're not sure where you stand with God and you think you earn favor with God through your actions and good deeds, death is a scary thing because we all know that we're pretty broken. We need to know that death has been conquered. Now, certainly we still live with the effects of death. Death is still a reality, and yet the the power of death has been conquered. And one day in the resurrection, death will completely be done away with. And I want us to see this, that this idea of death being conquered is not merely a future hope of ours. It should be a present reality in our lives. When the world sees ordinary people, ordinary believers who have hope in the face of death, who are not enslaved in fear. This is incredibly powerful. This is the most powerful testimony you can give a watching world, which I believe is why God allows us to experience death still. I want to read one story. I I read this once before in a sermon, but it was like three years ago, so hopefully you don't remember it. This is a story of a missionary in India named Paul Hybert, and he writes this about um, a time in his missionary career. I want you to see in this story the power of ordinary Christians living with hope in the face of death. One day while teaching in the Bible school of Sham Shabbat, I saw Yalela standing in the door at the back of the class. He looked tired for he had walked many miles from Muchantala where he was an elder in the church. I assigned the class some reading and went to him to the office. When I asked why he had come, he said that smallpox had come to the village a few weeks earlier, and it had taken a number of children. Doctors trained in Western medicine had tried to halt the plague, but without success. Finally, in desperation, the village elders had sent for a diviner who told him that Museum, goddess of smallpox, was angry with the village. To satisfy her and stop the plague, the village would have to perform the water buffalo sacrifice. The village elders went around to each household in the village to raise money to purchase the buffalo, And when they came to the Christian homes, the Christians refused to give them anything, saying it was against their religious beliefs. The leaders were angry, pointing out that the goddess would not be satisfied until every household gave something as a token offering. Even even one coin would do. When the Christians refused, the elders forbade them to draw water from the village wells. The merchants refused to sell them food. In the end, some of the Christians had wanted to stop their harassment by, by giving the coin telling God they didn't mean it. But Yalela had refused to let them do so. Now, said Yalela, one of the Christian girls was sick with smallpox. He wanted me to pray with him for God's healing. As I knelt, my my mind was in turmoil. I had learned to pray as a child. I had studied prayer in seminary. I preached it as a pastor, but now I was to pray for a sick child as all the village watched to see if the Christian God was able to heal. Are you feeling his anguish right now, his despair. What do you want God to do in this moment? We want healing, don't we? Wouldn't that be the best way for God to work? Well, a week after our prayer meeting, Yulela returned to say the child had died. I felt thoroughly defeated. Who was I to be a missionary if I could not pray for healing and receive a positive answer? A few weeks later, he returned with a sense of triumph. How can you be so happy after the child died? I asked. 
The village would have acknowledged the power of our God had he healed the child, Eulalia said. But they knew in the end she would have to die eventually. When they saw in the funeral our hope of resurrection and reunion in heaven, they saw an even greater victory over death itself. And they have begun to ask about the Christian way. I began to realize in a new way that true answers to prayer are those that bring the greatest glory to God, not those that satisfy my immediate desires. It's all too easy to make Christianity a new magic in which we as gods can make God do our bidding. I read that story because I just want you to see the greatest demonstration of God's power is found in ordinary people, weak vessels, jars of clay, demonstrating God's power over death itself in everyday circumstances, showing a world who is in bondage of fear and death that there is a greater power, there's an ultimate victory. Yeah, in miraculous events, people see God working. I believe God does heal, he does miraculous things, but miraculous things are always temporary. A person who is healed will eventually get sick again, they'll eventually die. But when people see our testimony that there is hope that has conquered death, that is a permanent victory. And I want us to see this. Jesus gave up his glory temporarily so that we might be glorified. He suffered for our sake. There are times that God calls us to suffer in the same way. Suffering will come, but we have hope. But our hope comes from clinging on to our Savior. That final point in your your, uh, notes this morning, kind of going back to the entire purpose of this letter of Hebrews and both the points above, joyful endurance requires holding on to the only true hero we have. This is why we need a bigger view of Jesus. So why we must hold on to Jesus. You hold on to Jesus, okay? I'd like to invite you to stand and let's pray and we will be dismissed. Let's pray. God, we are, wow. We are sobered to realize that you, God, both righteous, just, and holy, kind and loving, and and to offer us salvation, you, you didn't have to violate any of your character. God, that you would send a Savior who would represent us, that would do what we could not do, a champion that, that wouldn't just save us, but then would turn around and call us brothers and share honor and glory with us. This is a stunning thing. And God, my prayer this morning for our congregation, both those who are here now, those who are watching from elsewhere, God, that we would be people who would cling on to our true Savior that we would not try to find our hope, our glory, our identity uh, in empty and hollow and temporary things, but that we would hold on to Christ, that we would be people who would demonstrate the hope of eternity and resurrection that we have, that the fear of death, oh, death stings, but the fear of death has been defeated. God, allow us, even in times where you allow us to suffer, to point people to you so that they might have the same hope. God, as I prayed this at the beginning, we don't want just head knowledge, but we want knowledge that sinks into our hearts, that moves out into our hands and our feet, that affects how we live our lives. And I'd pray that for this congregation today. 
God, wherever you have us go this week, whoever you have us interact with, God, would you be with us and give us the strength we need to be people of testimony. And so, God, I pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.